0: We're in Hebrews chapter 3. As Christians, there are many attributes of our faith and of our Father that we enjoy immensely. The topics that we enjoy the most are things like the love of God. We cannot hear enough about the love of God. We love to know how much our God loves. Loves us, and those verses and those teachings that highlight those things are for us such a treasured thing. We love the peace of God, especially those of us that lead chaotic lives that are constantly looking for a little bit of respite. When we come into those seasons of God's peace, or when we hear about the peace that God gives, it comforts our hearts. We like to talk about the power of God and the dynamic that he brings into our lives as we live with his spirit within us and flowing through us. And we we love the power of God and we love the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God, the things that he teaches and the way that he works through our lives imparting to us his wisdom. All of those things are are treasured topics to us. One of the things that maybe we don't like to hear about so much and that maybe isn't a favorite topic is this thing that the Bible says that's called the fear of God. And for some reason, we tend to shy away from uh, the whole concept of being fearful of God or having a holy awe or a holy reverence of Him. But the amazing thing to consider is that when you lay the fear of God, which the Bible talks about, against all of the other things that we like to hear about, the fear of God is mentioned more times in the Bible than all of the others combined. In fact, when God gave the law to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, and it was then recorded for the people in cliff note form so that they could then uh, know the things that God had said to them. After God reiterates the law, the Ten Commandments in chapter five, he says in chapter six, God giving his commentary on it, the first thing that he says He says in chapter six, verse one, now these are the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it and that you might fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you and your son and your son's son all the days of your life that thy days may be prolonged and it isn't until he comes to verse 5 a breath later that he says that you shall love them the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and the foundation of the relationship that God calls his people into before anything else is that there is to be a holy fear of God. If you take the concept of the fear of God and you just look at it through the lens of just three books of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Psalms, and the book of Proverbs, you find that the fear of God is held before us as something that we're to possess and something that we're to hold very closely to us over 40 times in just those three books and then not counting any of the prophets or any of the other places that it is spoken of. The fear of God is something that is actually a very character trait of God's person. In the book of Revelation, we read about the seven spirits that are before the throne of God. And it's just a a way in which the Holy Spirit is personified uh, and and split into seven character traits. When you first read that, you, you think, well, what in the world does that mean, the seven spirits that are before the throne of God? When you read the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, the, the interpretation of that is given, and, it, and what it does is it describes the spirit of the Lord, and it divides it seven ways, and it says that, that speaking of Jesus, that he'll possess the spirit of the Lord, or the spirit of love, and the spirit of wisdom, and the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of understanding, and the spirit of counsel, and the spirit of strength, and then the spirit of Uh, It says, finally, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And to fear God is something that is, is an attribute or a characteristic of his very person. And so if we're gonna be people that are filled with God, possessed by his Holy Spirit, then to be absent, the fear of God is to be absent a part of his person because that's something that the spirit imparts within our lives when he comes into them. Jesus himself gave the command or the charge uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, when he was speaking concerning those that would persecute us and even take our lives because of our faith. And he said this, he said, fear not him that can kill the body and then after that, it can do nothing more, but rather fear him who after the body's been killed has power to cast the soul or the life into hell. And Jesus spoke of the fear of God Uh, And it's something that is important and that we're to hold up in our lives. We understand, as, as just human beings, that fear is a very important thing. It's a natural defense or a natural warning against imminent danger. I see it in my young kids all the time. I was on the playground with my young son, Noah, just a few days ago. And uh, the playground was was one of the older kid playgrounds. And there was this miniature rock wall that the kids could climb. And he he saw it and got ambitious. ambitious, And he began climbing up. And he's only three years old. And he's a short little guy. And he's very strong and very coordinated. But he got about halfway up the wall. And he realized where he was and what he was doing. And I saw the natural uh, defense against imminent danger come over his life as he realized that he might be a little bit out of his league. And fear is something that God has given to us uh, as a gift or as a defense so that we don't get ourselves into places or into things that are a reason for harm. And the reason why uh, fear is spoken of so much in the Bible, and the fear of God is something that we're supposed to have, is because if you have, as a Christian... Every other attribute, if you, if you know the love of God, you know the power and the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, you know the grace of God and the you could be an expert in every other one of those things. But if you lack the fear of God as a Christian, or I do, then it's only a matter of time before all the other things become a spattering of a train wreck within our lives. Because without the fear of God, we're headed for problems. What is it that causes a Christian businessman who starts off early in his life uh, pursuing the things of God and dedicating his life and his his practice and all that that he wants to, 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 to achieve and to attain unto the Lord? And what causes that businessman to then veer off into a place where um, he, he gets into crooked ways and um, violates laws and violates uh, people's rights and, and, and defrauds people and, and finds himself someday sitting on a pile of corruption where everything he has has come to nothing and he, he's ruined everything in his life uh, that he set out to initially achieve. How does he end up there? He, he doesn't end up there you know, because God wasn't able to lead him. But somewhere along the way, that man lost the fear of God and he began to think that he could do things contrary to what God said and that somehow things would still work out well in the end. Or how does a Christian husband or a Christian wife get into a situation where they rekindle a relationship with someone that is long passed out of their life and, and should be? but they get back into this thing and, 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 and one thing takes over into another and they find themselves at some point then uh, with a disaster on their hands and they've ruined generations of lives because of decisions that they made. How do they end up there? Somewhere along the line, they left off the fear of the Lord. Or, or how about the Christian pastor who sets forth in a call of God with a pure heart and a desire to serve people and to please his Lord? but he begins to ride the wings of fame and to be, begins to, uh, to, 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 to get lifted up in pride and to, begins to chase after things that God never intended for his life and, and finds himself in a place where he has uh, ruined the trust of people that have given their lives to Jesus Christ, given a black eye to the church and he becomes a shell of what God initially intended for him and what he set out to be. How does that happen? It happens when the fear of God becomes less important in the life of that person or just the plain Christian brother or sister that backs away from the initial calling that God had upon their life and they, they, they are far, far, far away from what they once were in their relationship with the Lord. It happens when the person leaves the fear of God. The Bible declares to us in several places that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is simply the the proper application of knowledge. It's taking what I know and using it to make the best decisions that I can. And wisdom begins with the fear of God. If I have a healthy fear of God, then that's gonna govern my decisions to be made in the right way. But it also stands to reason that if I leave off the fear of God, then that's the beginning of a train wreck within my life and so even though we are loved by god and we're recipients of his grace and he gives us the peace that passes understanding and all of those things are present within our lives if we lose the fear of god as believers it's only a matter of time before we're going to get ourselves into trouble and so we are in need as christians of fearing our god it's a healthy thing it's a holy thing it's an essential thing and it's the warning that the author of Hebrews gives to us tonight as we come into chapter three of our text. And so if you would look with me at verse one of chapter three, the author of Hebrews writes, and he says, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all of his house. In these first two verses of chapter 3, we have three things, essentially, that are placed before us. First of all, we have a cause. Second of all, an audience. And then third, a theme. The cause that's presented before us is represented just by the word at the very beginning, that word, wherefore. And that is one of those connective words that attaches what he's about to say now in chapter three to what he has already said back in chapters one and two. And, and if you wanted just for your, for your own mind, you could think of him as saying in light of this uh, and then going on to what he has to say. And so the question is, in light of what? If, the, if he begins a sentence with wherefore, we've got to know what he has said beforehand. And so what he is pointing to in all of this is everything that he has said beforehand now. And what he is, who he is talking to is first century Hebrew Christians that are in a place where they're being pressured to turn away from faith in Christ and to go back to their Jewish roots and to leave salvation by faith for some other thing. And more specifically, what the writer is talking about is the power that Jesus gives to his people to overcome the temptations that would move us in that direction. And so the author is saying in light of the temptations that you're facing to go back into what God saved you out of and the power of those temptations and in light of the fact that we have a great high priest who is able to deliver us from those temptations and to see us through. In light of that, now he goes on to give this uh, exhortation. And then, so the cause is in light of the temptation, the audience is very clearly the Christians. He says, wherefore, holy brethren, holy ones or sanctified ones, those that have been set apart by God as his cherished possession." and brothers would be those that are are Christians, brothers and sistren, you could add that, you have the liberty to do it, sisters, you know, but then partakers of the heavenly calling, there is no doubt who it is that he's speaking to, he's talking to believers here that are facing these temptations, that's the audience, and then finally, the theme, and the theme is Uh, represented by the word consider. He says, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful in all of his house as Moses was in all of his. Now, the writer of Hebrews is systematically holding Jesus Christ next to all of the attributes of the old covenant system. And he is showing there how Jesus is superior. And so he has shown that Jesus is superior to prophets. And he has shown that Jesus is superior to angels. And now he is going to show how Jesus is superior to Moses. Now, the author is treading on holy ground at this point. Because if you wanted to talk to a Jewish person about angels, that was one thing. If you wanted to talk to them about their prophets, that was another But once you mention the name Moses, now you're treading on the highest esteemed name in all of Judaism. You remember that Jesus was accused of undoing the traditions and customs that had been given to them by Moses. And that very sentence was what was used by the scribes and the Pharisees to incite the people against Jesus. They would hear, against Moses? He's coming against Moses? And that would automatically put them on defense against them. And so the author now of Hebrews is on holy ground as he sets Jesus Christ in contrast and comparison to Moses as he brings before him them uh, this attribute of who he is. What are the similarities between Jesus and Moses? That's what he brings up first. He says that Jesus was faithful in all of his house even as Moses was faithful in all of his. So what are the similarities between Jesus and Moses? First of all, they were both apostles. An apostle is very simply just one who is sent, an ambassador, if you would, but in a holy sense, an ambassador from heaven, and their calling is to establish something that was previously unfounded. So someone who is sent for a cause of establishing a purpose. That's what an apostle is. We think of the apostles that were sent by Jesus, and that's the context in which we think of apostles typically. They were sent by Christ as foundational pillars to establish the church, and so they were the apostles of the Lamb. But Moses was an apostle to the Jews sent by God for the sake of establishing the old covenant or the law. And he was truly faithful in what God had given him to do. He saw that covenant established. He was faithful in what God gave him. And so Moses was an apostle. Jesus was also an apostle. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is considered or called an apostle, but he very much was in the context that he was sent by the father with the purpose of establishing the church or the new covenant. He said, At the last supper, he said, a new covenant I give unto you, the new covenant that is in my blood and that is the forgiveness of sins. And so as Moses was the apostle of the old covenant, Jesus Christ was the apostle of the new, sent by the father in his name to establish the covenant of grace. John chapter one, verse 17 says, that for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by jesus christ so moses the apostle of the old jesus the apostle of the new jesus and moses also comparing the two in common they also were both high priests a priest is nothing more than a mediator someone who stands for god on behalf of the people And someone who stands for the people on behalf of God. Someone, as you would, an advocate or a defense attorney. Someone who is a daysman, Lays their hand upon the two and brings reconciliation. And Moses very much was that. When he came down from Mount Sinai and the people had heard the voice of God, they said, listen, we don't want to hear that again. That's way too intense for us. So you go and talk to God. And then come and tell us what he said and we'll listen to your words. And henceforth also, you can bring our words to God and you can be the priest that stands between God and us. And so Moses was the high priest in a sense, in that sense, in his lifetime um, before the people. Jesus also the great high priest. First Timothy chapter two, verse five says that there is one mediator or one priest that is between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews at the end of the last chapter has set forth that Jesus is our great high priest. There is no longer any priesthood that we have to deal with other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the great high priest. So Jesus and Moses, both high priests. Also in common, Jesus and Moses were both faithful. Moses, the most highly esteemed pillar of Old Testament establishment, and Jesus, faithful in what God gave him to do, he would say, I do always those things which please the Father, and I have finished the work that he has given me to do. And so Jesus, being able to say, it is finished from the cross, was found faithful in the work that God had given him to do. So Jesus and Moses, both faithful and they were both successful. That is that they completed what it is that they were sent forth to do. So Jesus and Moses absolutely had a lot in common. Now that's essential because Moses said that the way that the people would recognize Jesus the Messiah when he would come is that God would raise up a prophet like unto me. And so it was essential that Jesus would be like Moses in the style of his ministry and what he came to do. But the comparison ends there. From here, we get the contrast. That is, what sets Jesus apart from Moses? Well, that's what the author goes on now to tell us in verse three. He says in verse three, for this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who has builded the house has more honor than the house for every house is built by some man but he that built all things is god so in other words you wouldn't give more honor to the one who built that or to, to the one who is the house than to the one who built the house And the point that he's making here is that although Moses was sent by God to establish the old covenant, he was part of the house that God was seeking to establish. He was one of the people, whereas Jesus, worthy of more glory than Moses, in that Jesus was the very builder of the house himself, not just a part of it. What did Jesus say to his disciples In Caesarea Philippi, when he said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, you're right, Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. He's the builder of the house. And so the builder of the house has more glory than the house. So Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, not only is he greater than Moses in that he's the builder of the house, but notice in verse four, He says that every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And the point that the writer made back in chapter two, that he's reiterating here in chapter three, is that Jesus was more than simply a man. Moses was a man called by God, but Jesus was the God man. He was God in the flesh. And so in that Jesus was God, he automatically outranks Moses. So, though they had similarities, their similarities end at a point, and Jesus keeps going. He is superior to Moses. So he says, verse 5 And as Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end? So Moses was good, but at best, he was only a servant. And he was sent to be a testimony of those things that would come after him. But Jesus, not a servant, but a son, and the very fulfillment of the things of which Moses was prophesying and pointing towards. And so Jesus exceeds and his glory exceeds that of Moses infinitely so. And so Jesus, not only superior to prophets, not only superior to angels, but Jesus is superior to Moses, the one who founded the entirety of the old covenant system. Now, the amazing thing to me is this, pausing and taking a step back from the text for a minute, a breather, if you would. The writer of Hebrews spent two chapters discussing how Jesus was superior to angels. And he only spends five and a half verses discussing how Jesus is superior to Moses. Wouldn't you think it would be the other way around? That he would have a few phrases, a couple things to say about angels, and then he would say, okay, now let's talk about Moses. That's a big one. But he doesn't. He only gives a few words against Moses, and probably because he already laid forth the truth of who Jesus was in all of the previous arguments so far. But what the author does here is that he breaks from the narrative concerning Moses to talk directly into the heart of the believer. He goes off the brain now and right to the heart. And he goes from the textbook now to the truth concerning you and I. And he talks very severely to us concerning our profession of faith in Jesus Christ and the place where we stand as it relates to our salvation and what we believe in him. Notice the warning that he begins to give now at the end of verse six. He says that Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And now he elaborates on the warning that he's going to begin to give. He says in verse seven, he says, wherefore, and there's that word again, wherefore. It's that connective word that basically means in light of this, in light of this call, in light of the severity of what it means to be in Christ, in light of the temptation that you're facing to go back into things that you came out of prior to knowing Christ personally. In light of that, he says, as the holy ghost says now pause for just a moment i want you to notice something do you see in your bible or on the screen and i hope it's there on the screen that there is a beginning of a parenthesis there in verse 7 he's quoting from psalm chapter 95 and he's going to do that all the way from chapter or verse 7 all the way down through verse 11 so the next 4 verses Five verses are, are all going to be a quotation from Psalm chapter 95, and the end of the parentheses is going to come at the end of verse 11. So, what he is basically saying here as he quotes Psalm 95 is he's saying that in light of the warning that is given in psalm chapter 95 i want to give you a warning in the same thing so i want to do this for just a minute and this will be harder for you if you are just using the screen as your bible tonight but if you have your bible i just want you to see this before we progress any further is that if you remove the parentheses for just a minute and you take the thought in its most progressive form what the writer of hebrews here is saying is wherefore And then skip all the way from there down to verse 12. Take heed. Wherefore, in light of this, take heed or be aware or be on guard, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So now come back for just a moment and realize what's inside or consider what's inside the parentheses. It's a quote from Psalm chapter 95. And Psalm chapter 95 essentially is this. It is a call to the people of God to worship him with their whole life. And then second of all, a warning not to draw back and draw away from that calling. Let's read together Psalm chapter 95. It's not a long Psalm, but just so you understand the context and the heart of the writer here and what he's trying to say. He says in Psalm 95, he says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it and his hands formed the dry ground. And now here's the point of the whole Psalm, verse six. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And so the call of the Psalmist to you and I is that we are to come and worship the Lord that we're to bend the knee and we're to give him place as Lord over every area of our lives. And that call is then followed by this warning in verse eight. He says, harden not your heart, or I'm sorry, it starts actually at the end of verse seven. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter my rest. Now back in Hebrews, he quotes verses seven through 11 of that same Psalm here in verses seven through 11 of Hebrews chapter three. He says, today, if you will hear my voice, harden not your hearts. And he goes through the same exact words verbatim all the way up through verse 11 here uh, in, in Hebrews chapter three. And so he gives to us now this warning in this Psalm. And in it, he says that we're to, when we hear him, we are not to harden our hearts, but rather we're to give God uh, place within our lives completely notice that there's three elements in this there's first of all a time he says today second of all there is an action and that is if you hear his voice and then third there's a reaction and that is that we're to receive what god says and that we're not to harden our hearts when he says it concerning the time there is always interruptions in our lives when God comes in and he does things. Salvation is an interruption, isn't it? I mean, think about when you gave your life to Christ. It didn't come at a convenient moment that you heard the gospel, but God came and he got your attention somewhere, whether it was through someone sharing with you or in a service or something that you heard or your parents teaching you the things of God. And the seed that was sown germinates at a certain point. And you realize God is calling. He's real and I need to respond. And at that point, we have a choice, don't we? We can either respond and yield and give our lives to Christ or we can harden our hearts and resist what God is trying to do in us and we can push him away. We have a choice in that thing. It also happens throughout the span of our Christian experience. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. Those are comforting words, but they're challenging words. Because what it means is that if we let God into our hearts, that just as a fire will consume everything that it touches that is in its presence, so God, if he's in us, he's gonna consume every part of our life. So as we walk with him throughout the time that we know him, he'll come towards certain things and his fire will touch certain areas of our life. And he'll say, I want you to yield this to my control now. And we have a choice every time that happens of whether or not we're going to yield and say, okay, God, you can have this area of my life. Or if we're going to harden our hearts and say, no, God, you can't have this. This is mine. You can have everything else around it, but you can't have this. And so the choice that we have to soften and receive or harden and resist is a very real thing that we deal with on on a constant basis. And so when God speaks to us, whether it be for salvation or for change, we're to soften our hearts and let him do what he wants to do within our lives, not to resist and push him away and tell him that he can't. To harden our hearts means that we're suppressing what it is that God is seeking to do within us. We're closing our ears so that we can't hear what we would otherwise know to be the obvious will of God For us in a particular instance or situation we're pushing him away and suppressing it pushing it down so that we wouldn't and why do we do that we do it because we don't want our lives to be interrupted or we don't want god meddling with the area of life that he's seeking to have access to we like what it is and what it looks like and so we don't god or want god in it but he's a consuming fire and so the warning that we're being given in light of this by the writer of Hebrews is this. He's saying, wherefore, in the same spirit of hearing God's voice and softening your heart, he says, take heed in verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the will of God or uh, or from uh, the living God. The warning that's given to us in psalm chapter 95 is as living and active for the christian in new testament times as it was for the jews that were given that psalm and the exhortation of that psalm in that day then this warning applies to us what is the warning it's the warning against departing from god because we have an evil heart of unbelief Unbelief manifests itself, not just in the unsaved, but it manifests itself in those that have given their lives to Christ as well. Unbelief always starts with the hardening of the heart. When God wants to do something and we resist him, he says, let go, and we say, no. Or he says, rise up, or step up, or speak up, and we say, no, and we resist him in the thing. That's where it begins. It's the hardening of the heart. The second place where where hardening and unbelief happen is when we have ignorant impatience. Notice in the Psalm passage that's quoted, the, the when, of when they began to unbelieve. God says, you hardened your heart in the day of provocation, in the day that you were tempted in the wilderness. Do you realize that every single one of us that have given our lives to Christ we all go through a season of testing or of temptation. Sometimes we go through many seasons of temptation and testing along the way. And the time that we're the most vulnerable to a hardened heart often is when we're going through those seasons of testing and temptation. For the children of Israel, it was 40 years long. Thank God it's not like that for any of us anymore, amen. But for 40 years, they were tempted, they were tested. There was a leanness. There was an uncertainty and an insecurity about where they were going and where they had come from. And they were questioning constantly if God was really in their midst. And God said that the purpose of that time was to test them, to try them, to see if they would follow the Lord or not. And every one of us goes through those times. And sometimes when we're going through a time of testing, where God is seeing if we'll believe in spite of uncomfortable circumstances, that's when we're the most prone to harden our heart and resist him. And so unbelief has its roots in hardening of heart and also in ignorant impatience. Now, thankfully, God's will is not to leave us in the place of tempting or testing forever. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And that says that after we have suffered a while, that God will establish strengthen and settle us and that's always the way of our father he doesn't call us to afflict us he'll test us he'll prove us he'll refine us but then he'll set us in a place where there's an establishing and a strengthening and where we feel settled in our walk with him the other place where unbelief roots is in disillusionment or in ignorance of his ways notice again what the psalmist says concerning the children of israel He says that that God's indictment against them was that they do always err in their hearts because they do not know my ways. And that is that the children of Israel had come out of Egypt and they were saved from the bondage and the slavery of Egypt, but God wasn't living up to their expectations while they were wandering in the wilderness. And because God wasn't doing the thing that they wanted him to do in the timing that they wanted God to do it, their hearts became hardened and many of them sought to go back to Egypt and many of them gave themselves over to iniquity and to sin and they rebelled against God because he wasn't doing things their way. And the same thing holds true in the modern era for Christians today. Sometimes God doesn't do things the way that we think he should or the way we want him to or in the timing that we want him to, and we can become disillusioned, and because we're not familiar with his ways, we err in our hearts. We begin to think, well, God doesn't really love me, or that God doesn't care about my situation, or God doesn't see, or God wants me to suffer, or God doesn't know me, and that's why he's allowing this to continue in my life year after year. And there's an error that happens in the heart and the person can slowly begin to say, well, if God, this is the way that you're gonna treat me, then I'm gonna just draw back just a little bit. And a hardening of heart begins to happen. And so resistance, ignorance, disillusionment, all of those things can happen in our lives today just as they happened in the children of Israel's lives then. And if we let that happen, then we're in danger of departing from the living God because we've allowed an evil heart of unbelief to replace a faithful heart that we started with when we were uh, you know, first beginning in Christ. Now, unbelief always results in evil behavior. Did you know that what we do, our actions, are simply the revelation of what we believe? We do what we do because of what we believe. And we don't do the things that we don't do because of what we believe. And when we are in unbelief concerning God, then our hearts are given over to do things that are contrary to God. And like the children of Israel who went back and rebelled, we are in danger of the same. And so he says, take heed, brethren. That's the warning. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing, from the living God. Now, what's the remedy so that we don't find ourselves in that position? He says in verse 13, he says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He talks to us about the importance of daily fellowship, contact, and accountability with other Christians. It's so essential that you and I are in fellowship with other believers. And not just in fellowship where we're acquainting or you know, meeting together on a, on, a, on a social level or a recreational level, level, but that we have spiritual fellowship with other believers in the body of Christ. It's of the utmost importance because we're in danger otherwise of being hardened, as he calls it, through the deceitfulness of sin. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Do you have people in your life that you have spiritual fellowship with, that are able to speak to you on a spiritual and personal level, that know you, and that are able to talk to you about your relationship with God? If not, you're in a vulnerable place. We all should have those people. Hopefully, we have that with our spouses that our relationship is open enough with them that we can talk about the things of God freely and our hearts can be vulnerable before them, that we don't have to put up a mask or a veneer and make them think that we're something that we're not. It's important that we have that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, says that we're to speak the truth in love, in edifying and building one another up. And it's important that we do that, that we have a responsibility to one another. Notice that he calls sin deceitful at the end of the verse. He says, exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is wickedly deceitful. Did you know that? Sin, when we allow it into our lives, it will destroy us completely. It has a way of doing that. The way sin does it is, first of all, is it just gets a little hold upon us. We entertain just the smallest thought of whether or not we should do something or whether we should go somewhere or, you know, think a certain way. And it's just a small thing. It's a little sin. It's no big deal. And we let it in. And we think, well, I'll be able to control it because it's just something small. And it's, you know, I have this. I've already gotten the victory. And so I can flirt with this just a little bit. And so we let sin in. And it just gets a little bit of a toehold within our life. But what sin does once it gets in and under the surface, the first thing it does is that it suppresses the voice of truth and it disables our ability to think clearly and reason and process properly what the sin is doing within our lives. It clouds our judgment. And so the toehold that it started when it first got in becomes a foothold and now it's doing its work within our life. And once sin has a foothold in the life of a person, it slowly begins to choke out every good thing and to slowly destroy the life. That's what sin does. And it is so essential for you and I to understand that, that if we flirt with sin, especially the things that we know that we have a propensity towards, if we allow those things in even just a little bit, those things will absolutely destroy us. We are not stronger Than sin. Jesus is, and his blood is, and his word is, but you and I, apart from him, are not. And we're foolish to think that in any way we can flirt with sin and we can get away. Sin blinds, sin binds, and then sin grinds us. It always will. And so he says exhort one another, be in fellowship with each other, lest you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and here's why that's so important in verse 14 he says for we are made partakers of christ if second time that word if is used in this chapter we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end listen this is not a game this isn't a little festival that we come into and we join a church and what we do and how we live and what happens in our lives after we come forward or lift up our hands, none of that matters. Love wins. We all get into heaven in the end. The writer of Hebrews and the writer of the gospels and the writer of the epistles, they would argue with you in that. We are called not simply to make a profession of faith in Christ, but we are called to continue in that profession all the way up until the end. That's the call. Jesus would say in John chapter eight, verse 31, he would say, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. But he calls us to continue. In John chapter 15, verse nine, Jesus would say, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue now in my love. John chapter 15, the entirety of the chapter is about the call for us to abide in Jesus Christ, not simply to make a profession and then to live our lives separate from him or in tandem with him, but we're to abide in him, rooted in him, one in the same. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, concerning the persecution that we would face as believers, he would say that he that would endure persecution all the way until the end through to the end that he shall be saved concerning the the calamities that will come upon the world in the last days and the difficulty that believers would face in the times coming up to the coming of christ jesus would say in matthew chapter 24 verses 12 and 13 that because iniquity will abound the love of many will wax cold that sin is going to have an effect upon those that have tasted of the love of God. But Jesus adds to that, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. In Romans chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, the Apostle Paul talking about Israel and how God was dealing with Israel and how God was dealing with Israel. Paul says this to the believers of the, the New Testament. He says, for if God spared not the natural branches, speaking of Israel, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold therefore the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. To the Colossians, Paul would say in Colossians chapter one, verse 23, he would say back up in verse 21, you has he reconciled in the body of his son, Jesus. But then in verse 23, he says, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, the importance of continuing. And then second Peter chapter two Verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Peter writes, and he says, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment given unto them. And so the writer of Hebrews adds his words and he says, for we are made partakers, one, partners with Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence unto the end. Now, what he is not saying to us here is that God is gonna take away from you the gift of salvation that he gave you on the day that you made your profession of faith in Christ. God does not take a gift away that you and I couldn't earn to to have in the beginning. But what he is telling us here is that our unbelief will take us away from our profession of faith if we allow ourselves to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Notice as he goes on in verse 15, he says, while it is said... "'Today, if you will hear his voice, "'harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. "'For some, when they heard, did provoke.'" Howbeit not all, not everyone grieved God and fell away under Moses. "'But,' verse 17, "'with whom was he grieved with the, for those 40 years? "'Was it not with them that had sinned, "'whose carcasses had fallen in the wilderness?' Who was it that God was grieved with in the old covenant when they were called out? It was those that had gone with Korah in his rebellion against Moses. He was grieved with those who complained against the manna, the bread that God was providing them from heaven daily for them to eat. He was uh, grieved with those that were complaining that there was no water and no food. He was grieved with those at Sinai who... You know, while Moses was up on the mountain, had given themselves over to fornication and built the golden calf. He was grieved with those that had sinned in the matter of, uh, you know, Balaam and and Moab and and the women that came into the camp to seduce the men. Those were the ones, they were the ones that departed from God that said, as for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. We will make a leader for us. We'll make ourselves gods and we will go back to Egypt. And they threw off their faith in God because he wasn't doing things the way that they uh, desired. And so he was grieved with them. Notice the word grieved. He wasn't angry. It doesn't say that, that he was angry. He wasn't filled with wrath. He was grieved. Did you know that it grieves God when he can't do in our lives the things that he wants to do? Anyone who's a father understands that feeling, that when you want to do something for your kids and you can't because they're in a position where, where they, they would... Uh, corrupt or the blessing would corrupt them he goes on in verse 18 and he says and to whom swear he that that they should not enter into his rest but to them that believed not they didn't believe so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief unbelief is a faith stealer and then the warning and we finish with chapter 4 verse 1 our last verse tonight he says let us therefore fear in light of the severity of what this gospel represents and what rejection of this gospel represents and in light of the call that you and I have to not only believe in Christ but to hold fast the profession of that belief firm unto the end he says take heed fear lest the promise being left of us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. The importance of the fear of God. And if you and I lose that attribute, not that we would diminish any other part of what God calls us into. I remember when I first uh, was learning how to ride a motorcycle and I was just barely first married and someone gave me this old motorcycle and it was you know just the most thrilling thing in the world and they'd never ridden a dirt bike never ridden a mini bike uh, actually I did I rode a mini bike once when I was about 12 and I crashed into a tree but then not since and I, I remember getting on this motorcycle and um, and I didn't realize uh, the, at first learning that you, you can't turn a motorcycle the same way that you turn a bicycle. You can't just grab the handlebars and, and try to turn it. It doesn't work when you're going over 30 miles an hour. You just can't do that. You have to turn by leaning. I didn't know that. So I'm, I'm going and the road begins to curve and I try to turn and the bike ain't turning. And I went right across the 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 median on this curved road Right through a ditch, up into someone's lawn, hit the brakes, and just did one of these and came to a stop in the middle of someone's front yard. And and I just took my hands off everything, you know, and I just breathed for like five minutes and my spine slowly began to unfreeze, you know, and the whole thing. And and, and, an, and an incredible fear came over me as I realized that this thing that I was sitting on had the ability to very quickly take my life away from me. And, and it was a holy and healthy fear of the motorcycle that I established that day when I was first beginning to ride it. Now, if that's all there was, was the fear of that motorcycle, I never would have got back on that bike again. I would have just got off of it and I would have said, you know what, we'll leave this to the professionals. Four wheels is good for me. You know. And then I'll go, Now, that's not true. I still ride a motorcycle to this day and I love it. And there is great blessing and there is a great thrill and exhilaration with riding a motorcycle and feeling that close to you know the elements as you're traveling and all that. But I never lost that fear that was established on that day. And the same thing holds true in our relationship with God, the love of God, the grace of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, all of the things that God gives to us richly to enjoy. But if the foundation of our relationship with him isn't set first in the understanding that he is a holy all seeing, all knowing, all wise God, and that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we deal. And if we don't understand that we are but flesh and that what we do makes a difference in this world, not only as it pleases him, but also as it represents him and that those actions have consequences in our lives, in the lives of those that watch us and also in what we are eternally. If we lose that fear of God, then we're on the fast track to ruining our enjoyment of everything else that God has for us. The fear of God is essential. The writer of the book of Revelation wrote to the seven churches and it was speaking by the spirit of God, but it was Jesus himself that was speaking and he commends the church in Ephesus and he says to them all the good things. He says, you're, you're, you're trying those that say they're apostles and are false You're doing so many things that I'm so pleased with. But he says, I have one thing against you. He says, you have left your first love. And his suggestion to them to get back where they're supposed to be is that he says to them, do the first works. Go back to the beginning and rebuild upon the foundation where you started. And I know for me, and I believe I'm not the only one here, the foundation of my relationship with God was that there was a fear of God within my life. I knew who it was that I was coming to. One of the reasons that I didn't become a Christian for the five years that I resisted the gospel was because I knew what it meant to be a Christian and I wasn't willing to live that life. And we know as Christians here, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable before God. And somehow over the course or the lifespan of a Christian's walk with God, we can become a little bit relaxed And things that we never would have done as a new believer or things that we cried out to God to take out of our lives when we were new believers, we begin to slowly allow those things to creep back into our lives. And we think that we can control it or we can think we can keep it without consequence or we think that maybe God doesn't see or God doesn't care. He does see and he does care and it does have consequences. It's important that we maintain the fear of God. In the early days of my Christian experience, I remember going into the woods and crying out to God by myself and just screaming out and saying, God, you said, Philippians chapter one, verse six, that you would finish the work that you started in me. And I would cry out to God for deliverance from things that I knew in my life weren't supposed to be in my life. I remember as a young Christian, there was a a brother by the name of Bob Albee. And I remember talking to him, On a particular occasion and talking to him about the struggles that I was facing as a young believer. And he said to me, he said, Nick, he says, listen, you're early in your walk. And he says, this has always helped me. He said, I always pictured a a high mountain far in the distance with a little light on top. And he says, right now you're way at the beginning of this trail and everything is very dark. And all you know is that you want to walk towards that light and you're tripping and stumbling over all kinds of things. You're, you're, you're getting caught in the thorns and the thicket along the way because The way is dim and it's fresh for you. He says, keep your eyes on the light and keep walking towards it. And over time, things will become clearer and you'll gain experience and you'll get stronger. Don't worry about it. And I would cry out to God and say, God, forgive me for stumbling. Please, Lord, don't stop working in my life. I want your work. I don't wanna sin. I don't wanna grieve your Holy Spirit. But how things can change over time and we can get victory over a couple things and we can begin to relax. Listen, do not allow yourself to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These are perilous times. I know there are many in the body of Christ that have gone back to things that they had previously gotten victory over. People that are dabbling in alcohol again when God had given them the victory. People that are dabbling taking medications that they don't need because, well, I can get away with it and it'll just help me get through this day, this one time or whatever. People that are dabbling in relationships that should long be dead, dabbling, looking at things that they shouldn't be looking at, allowing things back into the life. Listen, these are severe days, dark days. And it's more important now than ever that we be on guard against the deceitfulness of sin and that we don't let those things have their way And in our life. And so the exhortation is this. Today, if you will hear his voice and whatever he might say to you, do not harden your hearts as they of old did in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, they proved me, they saw my works. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and I spoke, they shall not enter into my rest. Don't let a promise of God's rest being experienced in your life not come to pass because you're being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Continue in the word of God. Continue in the Father and in the Son. Do the things that you did in the beginning and don't let your steadfastness be taken from you. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we ask, Lord, as we come to the conclusion of this chapter and as we hear the severity of the voice of your spirit speaking through the author of Hebrews, we ask you, Lord, that you would speak to us individually right now, that you would give to us a clear understanding of where we are and that those things in our lives that don't belong, that you'd give us the power and the ability to yield into your hand. Your word tells us that you are an all-consuming fire. And I pray tonight, Lord, that not one of us that's here in this room would resist or suppress the spreading of that fire to overtake every part of our lives. And Father, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you personally, that doesn't know your love and your grace and your cross and the forgiveness of sins, I pray that your Holy Spirit would knock on their heart and that they would hear your voice today to come to salvation. So Lord, for each of us where we are, we pray, would you speak? Would you light a fire again in us? Would you cause us to hear and to heed and to know your love, your power, and your fear within our lives? And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.